And today we are traveling to another dimension, a dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. Indeed, it's rare that a television show rises to the level of significant social commentary. But The Twilight Zone, which broadcast on CBS from 1959 to 1964, stands as the role model for socially significant as well as entertaining television anthologies. Indeed, its quote-unquote sci-fi fantasy parables explore humanity's hopes, despairs, prides, and prejudices in metaphoric ways that conventional dramas simply did not and cannot. So uh, at a time when nonfiction programs refused to tackle some of the most pressing issues, creator-writer Rod Serling addressed racism, Cold War, paranoia, groupthink, as we just heard, and uh, conformity. Well, this new television season marks the 50th anniversary of the premiere of The Twilight Zone. And so today we're going to take a look at Dimensions Behind the Twilight Zone with Stuart Stanyard. And uh, a bit about our guest, Stuart Stanyard, attributes a lifelong interest in the arts to a youth spent watching monster movies and The Twilight Zone. He received a Bachelor in Fine Arts degree in illustration from the Academy of Art University in San Francisco. And he uh, has created artwork for books, magazines, comics, storyboards, websites, and video games. He illustrated Clive Barker's graphic novel, the Life of Death, the SNL Scandal Trading Cards, and created storyboards and digital art for the video games Hellraiser, Virtual Hell, Falcon 4, and Star Trek Birth of the Federation. A longtime admirer of Rod Serling, he served as a board member for the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation and is the creator of the Twilight Zone Archives, a nonprofit organization that you could find at twilightzone.org. He is also uh, the author of Dimensions Behind the Twilight Zone. He lives in Northern California and joins us on the phone. Good morning. Morning, Jared. Thanks for having me on your show this morning. Thanks so much for uh, for joining us. It's quite uh, quite a uh, quite a resume there, and uh, it's <laughs> it's interesting that you still find time to uh, to be a fan and a champion of the Twilight Zone. So why don't we begin? Take us back. Uh, when did you first discover the Twilight Zone, and what do you think uh, about it in particular appealed to you? Oh, well, let's see. I was uh, born in the early 60s, so I grew up uh, as a child in the mid-late 60s and early 70s. The early 70s are really known for being having that monster boom. It really pushed... Um, you know, creature features on TV and and uh, monster magazines and all of this kind of stuff. I was just interested in science fiction and Ray Bradbury and being a young lad or, or even a teenager. I think I was probably like eight or nine when I first discovered shows like the, in rerun, of course, in syndication, uh, shows like Star Trek and The Outer Limits and, of course, The Twilight Zone. And there's something about The Twilight Zone that just had this uh, very unique magic to it. Um, even though there were other shows that were very cool, uh, it just seemed like the Twilight Zone was on a totally different level. And they were in these half-hour shows presented by this guy who just seemed so omnipotent and uh, powerful. And these stories absolutely just blew me away, as they do everyone else. The, the twist endings. Uh, it's interesting, when you look back on the series, really, as a, and when you watch them when you're a young kid or a child, you usually um, 
uh, really relate or, or enjoy the scary ones with the, the twisty endings with, you know, the dolls, the uh, talky Tina from Living Doll. That, I'm talky Tina and I'm going to kill you. Or to serve man, the benevolent aliens that come down to earth to, to help us. And all of these kinds of things. Um, uh, but later on in life, uh, as you become an adult and you watch the show, you realize you get the poignant episodes uh, that Serling brought out, and he was very good at that with uh, episodes like Walking Distance and uh, Willoughby. Um, just the whole thing about wanting to have a second chance in your life, to be able to go back and see what you, if you could have had a second chance, and and to come out of that learning that well, you really have one one summer in life, and you should enjoy it. Uh, but I, but I really was just into a lot of monster movies, uh, and the Twilight Zone was really just seemed to be of the best quality. It's interesting that you you talk about kind of uh, an explosion, if you will, of of monster movies or maybe supernatural sci-fi mm. kind of themes in the uh, the seventies. It's uh, I think it was Philip Philip K. Dick who had written that um, sci-fi has far more. Uh, politics and and uh worldly uh issue themes of of politics and morality than do other genres because when it takes place in some fictional realm like a twilight zone or you know some starship enterprise you could get away there's more truth in in fiction than there is you know i mean uh saturday night live or the daily show or even the simpsons gets away with far more than you know any program like uh the west wing would have or or things of that nature do you think that the explosion of of monster movies and sci-fi was a response to the turbulent decade of the uh the 60s particularly the late 60s wow that's an interesting question i'm 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 not sure I I I think possibly I I know that some, like as you're as you're um pointing out science fiction has because it has so many guises underneath the human element that you can use robots and aliens and traveling in space and things so I I believe it probably does um but also uh, you know in the 50s <laughs> you know what a time that was I mean the TV shows that were on were so suppressed suppressive against women i think um you know uh, father's no father knows best and i love lucy and and uh, leave it to beaver <laughs> where all the women were literally just locked almost in the kitchen with an apron and well wait till your father gets home so uh, it seems like i think twilight zone uh, really uh, uh tore through the walls of of that by using the science fiction element and it probably did uh, influence a lot of um, other shows, I believe, through the years. I know Star Trek, or Gene Roddenberry admitted that uh, Rob Sterling really paved the way. We're speaking with Stuart Stanyard. Am I pronouncing your last name correctly, Stuart? Yeah. yeah. Uh, he's the author of Dimensions Behind the Twilight Zone. Uh, so take us back a bit. How did uh, the Twilight Zone get on the air? Because it's, it's such a unique program, particularly, you know, one looks today, we don't see shows that don't have a regular star, you know, and, and it's, I think, why so, so much television is crap today, uh, and, I'm a t- and, I'm, and I'm a TV junkie, or at least a Simpsons junkie, uh, is that um, they ha- the vehicle is carried by star power rather than by writing. And right. perhaps what was so unique about The Twilight Zone is that there, were no, there was no regular cast, though you know, Burgess, Meredith, and others did appear regularly. Um, so how did the program 
like that get on the air? And uh, did Serling run into any problems with some first drafts of the, the idea? Uh, well, originally, <clears throat> realized that Serling was um, a playwright or a tele- writing teleplays during the, the mid-50s. And, you know, he did uh, come up against a lot of uh, problems with censorship during that McCarthy era. Um, there were a lot of things that you just could not write about in a TV show. And during that time, the anthology was a fairly strong form of drama. So you had shows like Playhouse 90 and Craft uh, Television Theater and things of this nature. And... Um, uh, the, the first inception, actually, of The Twilight Zone was uh, a Westinghouse Desilu play that was called The Time Element. And that came out, I believe that was in 58. Um, that preceded the pilot episode of The Twilight Zone. And originally CBS shelved it because, well, we don't want to do this kind of fantasy weird thing. Uh, and Burt Granite, who became a producer on The Twilight Zone in later years, uh, pushed it and was able, he bought it and he was able to have it made. And once it was produced and shown on TV, it was a hit, and CBS realized, oh, well, you know, Rod Sterling's a uh, very good writer and, and he's won all these awards, and so we should just let him do the show that he wants to do. So the first pilot episode, Where Is Everybody, with Earl Holloman, if you recall the one where the guy uh, is in a town without any people, and he's kind of an amnesia case. He has no idea who he is. He has no identity, uh, which is uh, another theme that's uh, uh, dealt with a lot during the show, uh, um, urban alienation and, and identity crisis. You know, But uh, in, in that episode, <clears throat> you'll notice that the twist ending, re, uh, without giving a spoiler away, of course, uh, the twist ending really is more of a realistic ending. So that's how they were able to sell the networks and the sponsors uh, without having it start off with a robot or something, which they might have had some flags on. But then it was thereafter that they started adding all of these things once they were able to get past the network brass and the sponsors. And, you know, sponsors had a lot of control in those days. Uh, if there, I think there was a script, I think Judgment Night, which was probably the 10th episode or so of The Twilight Zone, um, and in that, they're on a British ship, and the sponsor was, I think, like Sanka Coffee or something. And um, I know this is detail-oriented, but just to give you an example, uh, Sanka Coffee, and in the script, uh, they, they call down for some tea, you know, some tea to be served. And Sanka, of course, or whoever it was, the coffee sponsor, had a big problem with that. And they went head-to-head with Sterling, and Sterling said, okay, well, we'll settle for send down a tray. Well, it's a precursor almost to product placement. It's pretty funny to hear right. to hear that. So, um, so correct me if I'm wrong, because my understanding was uh, perhaps from I think it was a, a PBS expose or or bio on Rod Serling was that initially CBS didn't like that it was too realistic. I thought that that was why they created the term the Twilight Zone. So as long as all of these themes took place in a fictional setting that it was one degree removed from McCarthyism or one degree removed from, you know, concern about the Cold War. But are you suggesting it was actually the other way around? Uh, well, no. I mean, they, they, ha- they, didn't, they just thought it was going to be a fun little series. They had no idea that it was going to have the impact as far as, like, the issues, the, the social issues that Serling was, was um, uh, bringing into the show. But he purposefully uh, tagged on 
uh, an ending for that pilot episode that returned us to reality because they felt, he felt, that if it was this wacky thing out of this world, that it would not sell. Got it. Got yeah. it. Yeah. Okay, well, let's take a look at some of uh, the the different themes, um, and then we could, if you want, you know, talk about specific episodes or some of your favorite episodes, but one of the things that I really like uh, about the Twilight Zone uh, archives, and I should let listeners know, they could go to twilightzone.org, uh, no space between Twilight Zone, to, to check this out, is um, the way you set up your episode finder, I mean, certainly the program was on for, what, five uh. Five years or so, um, mm, yeah. that you've got them organized around uh, different themes. You know, humanity, death, uh, second chance, creatures, uh, devil, evil, magic. So, talk about you know what you think were some of the dominant themes. We've already talked about kind of urban alienation. Uh, what are some of your favorite themes, or the themes that you thought were per- that resonated the most uh, with the public? Certainly, you probably have a sense of what are some of the more popular episodes. Yeah, some of the more popular episodes. Um, possi- well, I know that The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street is, is a very uh, popular episode, as is The eye, uh, the Beauty is in the Eye of the Beholder, or The Eye of the Beholder, um, which also deals with conformity and, and the social, social constructs of civilization and whatnot. But, um, well, let's see. The question is, what, what are some of my favorite episode or favorite themes well, what guess, are some or? of the, the fa- what are some of the dominant themes and then what are some of your favorite episodes oh. perhaps like an example of each you know dominant yeah. theme well humanity the the humanity theme i think is a very strong one there's just so much uh, there's the individuality mob mentality conformity um, alter ego the conscience uh, there's also the second chance i think is a dominant theme uh, there's different forms of of that um, with the dreamscape and and the nostalgic past, but I also must uh, give kudos to all of the aliens and the monsters <laughs> and all of the enchanted objects. There's a lot of enchanted objects, dolls and and shoes that have the spirit of the guy that was killed in them, who possesses its wearer, and uh, television sets and just things like this. A lot of machine and robot kind of episodes, and there is a few devils here and there and some evil characters. And a lot of magic as well, um, space travel and time travel. And it so, really goes into a lot of different themes. And so it seems that you know when you when you look at all those. I mean, when you talk about Second Chance, we made reference earlier to the um, mm. the Willoughby uh, episode. And for listeners, uh, maybe you could just give uh, um, a, a brief synopsis of what that episode was about. But it seems that you know a lot of these um, these themes of, you know, technology run amok or fear of the future or, you know, nostalgia really does resonate with, you know, concerns about, uh, you know, the arms race and the Cold War and, and just urbanization. Yeah, urbanization. Uh, Stop at Willoughby is basically just a, an ad man who works for an agency and it just, it keys on the whole corporate world and and drive, 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 push, push, push. And this guy is just, he's had it. You know, it's like, where's the humanity here? Where's the, the, the soul? You know, where's the feelings of man? And, and he's just having a lot of trouble. And on his way home on the subway or on the train home, he dozes off and suddenly wakes up in this, uh, this period of the, I guess would be the late 1900s in this little town called Willoughby that seems so peaceful and, and people are on bicycles and it's in the summer and, Little boys are 
going to fish, and wow, it's so pleasant, but then he wakes up. And so it's kind of like a, a counterpart to his, the corporate world that he hates so much, and he, it's a, a form of escapism. He keeps having this dream or whatever it is when he's on the train, and the last time he, again, without giving a spoiler away, uh, the last time he decides that, oh, I'm going to get off on, at Willoughby. I'm, I'm going to get off the next time it happens. And he does, and you know, then we have a little bit of a twist to the story there, which is such a great twist. And and I think you mean not <laughs> not the late nineteen uh, hundreds, late nineteenth century, probably eighteen oh, hundreds. Right. Of course, yeah. But yeah. I'm sure listeners have are, are aware of of that episode. Um, who were some of the regular stars? We mentioned Burgess Meredith, um, and you've had a chance to interview uh, some of the folks behind the Twilight Zone. Talk a bit about the kind of research that you did to, uh, to put together your book? Well, I worked on the book um, on the side for six and a half years, and uh, it just started off as I wanted to do a book that featured um, a portion of these very rare production photos that uh, I was able to come across, or there was an archivist that, that had these photographs that came from a, an old auction in the 70s from CBS Viacom, and I wanted to do a book that just featured a bunch of these photos. I thought I would do a coffee table book and then have captions, and then, but it just kept building and building and ended up becoming this thing that, all ego aside, just being a Twilight Zone fan, going into a bookstore and seeing this book on the shelf and pulling it off and flipping through it, I would literally say, oh, my God. <laughs> it's uh, the photographs alone, just these behind-the-scenes shots during actually shot during the filming of the series. They've, even uh, Zakri, who did the Twilight Zone Companion, was, was ga- uh, gasped by this. So I wanted to do a book with those. Then I started interviewing uh, alumni for the website, and I did about three or four interviews, and I thought, you know, I should really just save these interviews and, and try to put them in the book. And then it, the ball just kept rolling and rolling, and, you know, I was just all on my own here doing the calling SAG and getting agency numbers and telling them about the book and sending them a mock-up with the pictures and this and that. And it just grew into something like 60 interviews, but we could only fit so many in. So there's excerpts from 39 interviews uh, with a lot of different people, including uh, some directors like uh, Richard Donner, who went on to do the Lethal Weapon movies, and Richard Bear, who directed all of the uh, Green Acres TV show. And uh, Earl Holloman did a nice interview. Uh, I also was able to get an interview with Burt Granite, who was one of the last uh, uh, producers on the show while he was still with us. And, and then a whole slew, oh, and besides Carol Serling, uh, Rod Serling's wife, and Robert Serling, who's author, also an, uh, a writer, and uh, Rod Serling's brother. And then a whole slew of all these actors. And it was just amazing um, to be able to uh, sit down and, and talk with them, and most of them were phone interviews. Um, but to be able to just sit down and talk with them, you really had to act like a detective because most of these people would say, "Oh, you know, the Twilight Zone was the greatest show." It was, you know, when my agent would say, "You know, oh, I have a script for Twilight Zone. If you like checking it out, oh my God, sign with it. I want to do it. I don't even need to read the script." And you know, those people, they they were regular, so they didn't do uh, need to do a reading or anything to get the part. You know, Buck. Uh, Buck Houghton, the producer for the first three seasons, and Rod Serling, and of course the casting agents, but mostly Serling and Houghton would uh, talk about the kinds of actors and they would like to highlight on the show. And if you let me read a few names, 
Sure. Okay. Um, let's see, where do I have this? There's so many people. I mean, Robert Redford was even in an episode. You have uh, people like Lee Marvin and Peter Falk and Roddy McDowell, Robert Duvall, James Coburn, Jenny, uh, Dennis Hopper, William Shatner, who was in a couple episodes and obviously was in Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, which the one with the gremlin on the wing of the plane, the right. one we still remember. That's right. a really strong one. Of course, the other one that he did, too, the uh, the fortune teller, the devil fortune teller, is also yeah, Nick just... Of, s- Nick of Time, yeah. S- Both of those are actually Richard Matheson scripts. Wow. Just a great, um, yeah. great episodes. Yeah, dealing with superstition and, and you know, but how man can somehow, some people can be strong and, and pull themselves out of frailties, but then others, uh, they just still succumb to it, you know. But, yeah, it was a real adventure being able to talk with these people. I felt really thrilled and got some very incredible information. It's in the book, and it's a fun read. We're speaking with Stuart Stanyard. He is the author of Dimensions Behind the Twilight Zone and uh, the uh, webmaster archivist of the Twilight Zone archives. Um, I don't know if you're able to answer this next question, but um, many times I try to separate the art from the artist, but when it comes to the Twilight Zone, uh, I think so many people are fascinated by that, that ominous, omnipotent individual that you talked about, you know, Rod Serling, who introduces. Yeah. Um, what have you learned about him, his personality, and maybe how did he, you know, what was his motivation? I don't know if you're, if you, what you've learned about, or if you've read, you know, biographies of him or whatnot, but. Well, uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, well, first of all, to preface any of my comments, unfortunately, I was around 13 when Rod Serling passed away. Of course, and, and had I ever had I ever had a chance to meet him, I probably said, "I really like that episode where the guys on the." You know, <laughs> I had no intellectual capacity whatsoever, but um, in my travels and in my readings and all of these kinds of things, I've learned what a lot of other people have have picked up. But you know, uh, the things that I've talked about with the actors and, and people I've met, and you know, Rod Serling was actually a really, really great guy. He was really a very nice person, very approachable uh, in Hollywood. A lot of people can, you know, their heads can expand with egotism. And Ron Serling was the kind of guy that you could approach him. And he was very natural, and he appreciated uh, appreciated that. I think that, um, and, and, you know, I think that he was trying to regain his respect for humanity with the TV show. You know, he was in uh, World War II. He was a paratrooper, and he was in the Philippines. He was wounded. He won, you know, decorations and this and that. And uh, I, he saw death firsthand right in front of him. And who knows? I don't know. He may have killed people in the war, in World War II. Uh, and so he really was dealing with that stuff, and, and he also um, had nightmares about it throughout his life. So I think he was trying to make a point about humanity so that he could do his part to try to educate people through this mass media of television to just be kinder to each other and things like this. Of course, we know that Ron Serling smoked four packs of cigarettes a day. Wow. And I bring that up because today's world, I don't know what it is, but I see more and more people smoking, and it's literally the worst drug on the planet. Right. And here it killed Ron Serling, who was 50 years old. And if you look at pictures of him, 
you know, months before he died, he looks like he's 85 or something. Right. It's just, it's really sad. We also lost George Harrison of the Beatles. Anyways, I digress. Um, Rod Serling, you know, he loved to sit out in the sun by his pool. He loved the whole celebrity thing, but he was very approachable, like I mentioned. And, uh, you know, interestingly enough, uh, he has the statue of, uh, stature of a giant, um, and he was actually five foot four and a half. Wow. Yeah. So that just goes to show you that it's what's in your head, not in your body, to make to make it. You know, and which sounds like a, a theme of the Twilight Zone itself. Uh, it sure does. Running short on time, I just want to make sure that listeners know that they could certainly check out the Twilight Zone dot org. There's it. It really emphasizes the social relevance. You know the. Uh, the episode, The Shelter, which looks at, uh-huh. uh, you know, people, you know, fighting to get into uh, the only bomb shelter because they think that they're going to be attacked by UFOs. And then at the end, yeah. you know, it's it's a satellite or, uh, yeah. you know, again, we don't want to give away all the, the different endings, but the Willoughby ending, which makes comments about, you know, contemporary life. You've got the uh, the monsters are due on Maple Street, which which clearly was a, was an attack on on McCarthyism and mm. and fear of the other, was it not? Oh, of course, yeah. You know, and the the, the premise there, uh, a supposed meteor, uh, and reading from your website, and weird power outage causes a nice neighborhood to become uh, out of control with mob mentality, and uh, everyone suspects that the other person is really some kind of alien, and, you know, all you have to do is substitute the word communist or terrorist today, and <laughs> and it it uh, it definitely makes sense. And then the, you know, themes of... Uh, well, what, what were some themes of... Um, of race or racism that you could, uh, are there episodes that you think touch on that theme? Well, there's the episode, um, I am the night color me black. And that's a very, a very strange, it's a very strange episode. It's about, um, a guy who killed, who murdered a bigot. He, uh, as the story goes, he was defending the, uh, the recipient of the bigotry. Uh, and that's what led him to kill the bigot. Um, if that makes sense. But what happens is they're going to hang this guy. And everybody in town is just like, yeah, hang him, you know. And uh, the town is in darkness, and it's like 8 in the, eight in the morning or whatever. And, and it's just this contagious uh, hatred, I guess, uh, and bigotry. And that suddenly starts, they hear on the radio, that starts sprouting out, you know, the Berlin Wall. Now it's being seen here. Oh, this town is in darkness. So I think that's one that, that dealt with uh, uh, racism. Um, it's interesting. There's one episode that was of the first season, uh, The Big Tall Wish, um, with Ivan Dixon and Kim Hamilton. If you re- recall, he was a, uh, a boxer, and the little boy, you know, has the power of wishing. And it's like, oh, you know, you can't believe in wishes and whatnot. Well, here you have an episode that is a primarily African-American uh, cast, and it but the story has no racial issue whatsoever. So that's, that's another uh, example of how ahead of the time Serling was. Mm. And uh, finally, we should probably point out that uh, Serling was uh, the screenwriter for the adaptation of The Planet of the Apes, uh, is that ah, right? yes. which certainly yeah. tackles issues of, of race relations. And, I mean, it's such a great metaphor. It's like uh, Romero's yeah. Night of the Living Dead. You, it could be race. It could be uh, even animal rights and, and things of that nature. I mean, it's, it's such a great metaphor. Uh, such a great uh, screenplay. Finally, uh, the term "the Twilight Zone" has become uh, 
you know, symbolic or representative of just a whole kind of moral twist. Um, talk about the legacy just of the concept of the Twilight Zone. When someone t- says that it was a Twilight Zone moment or when someone says a town looked like the Twilight Zone or whatever, what is that? What does that mean, and uh, what does that mean to you to know that 50 years later this this idea is still going strong? It's interesting how it's like a form of expression almost. When something weird happens, something strange or, I don't know, unexplainable, the first thing that people, most people will do is dee-dee-doo-doo-dee-dee-doo. So, I mean, TV shows really don't have that kind of power, do they? <laughs> well, apparently, right. I mean, today they, they certainly don't, but... Uh, yeah. Well, it is uh, the Twilight Zone archives at twilightzone.org, and uh, the book is titled Dimensions Behind the Twilight Zone. And uh, if listeners want to uh, find uh, your book, where can they look? Well, they can find it in most any bookstore, and they can obviously find it on Amazon.com. Uh, great. Stuart Sanyard, I want to thank you so much for helping us celebrate this entertaining and uh, socially relevant uh, anniversary. So uh, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you so much, Jared. Take, you have a good one. Take care. Okay, you too. Bye-bye.